0: Good morning to all of us. I hope that you had a good week. Welcome to another opportunity that God has been pleased to give us to gather together as we continue to search the Scriptures, as we continue to stir up one another unto love and good works, and especially as Brother Johnson has reminded us, even as we see that day approaching, and we can only do that through the Scriptures. I hope. It is settled in our minds that there is no other way we can stir up one another to love and good works apart from the scriptures and of course the emphasis being the scriptures that are rightly divided. And therefore this morning we will be looking at part 12A of this series that uh, we've been on in the last while. And I want to hope and pray that it has been a blessing to us. As we continue to just come to a good understanding, a better understanding, and that truly speaking even as we look forward to coming to the end of it, not so far from today's lesson, that truly we will be witnesses to the Lord having opened the scriptures to us. And therefore I read to us our head scripture from Luke 24, and I will read verse 32. And this is the testimony that these two disciples... Uh, gave and they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? And in the last while as we have examined this uh, scripture, I am sure that this is a rhetoric question. What they were saying is that indeed their heart burned within them while Christ talked with them on the road while he opened the scriptures to them. For sure, he had opened the scriptures to them. And it is also my desire and prayer that he will do the same for us as we continue. I think I'm inclined to believe that the opening of the scriptures is not a one-time event. It's a continuous one. And therefore, as we continue to have that place of permanency, that there is so much that the Lord would be willing to reveal to us. Let's do a recap of where we were two weeks ago and um, among the things that we said by way of summary is that Stephen held the council culpable for the murder and betrayal of the just one who is Jesus Christ and if you look at the record of Peter in Acts chapter number 3, he had also equally made similar remarks when he was addressing the Jews. And during the first advent of Christ we know that the religious leaders of Israel, the council, received such a scathing condemnation from Christ. Of course if you turn to Matthew 23 there are so many phrases that begin with woe to you and this is addressed to none other but the religious leaders of Israel. Stephen correctly identified Christ to be the prophet like Moses, something that Peter had also uh, done in Acts chapter number 3 and we did say that both Peter and Stephen were drawing from the Old Testament scriptures and this could only have been the case because the scriptures had been open to them. I think prior to the scriptures being opened to Peter and to Stephen, this would not have been a possibility. And we also examined how Christ was a prophet like Moses because among them is that we saw that Moses was born At a time, Pharaoh had given a decree for male children to be killed, and immediately after the birth of Christ, we also did see that King Herod gave a similar decree. Moses was rejected by his brethren when he came to their rescue, and we also know that Christ was rejected by his brethren, the Jews, during his first advent. However, based on the testimony that Stephen gives in Acts 7, this same Moses who was rejected was later sent by God to deliver the Jews, giving us a, a picture, so to speak, or a type that this same Christ who was rejected the first time will be sent a second time to the Jews and they will, re- they will receive him. Of course this also applies to Joseph, if you may recall. And therefore the scriptures had been opened to Stephen. And you know the thing that intrigues me about Stephen is that he did not have such a significant position within the brethren so to speak because we did see that he was among the men who was chosen to serve tables and I'm sure that that may not come to us as a very lucrative position to have and yet because God is not a respecter of persons he opened the eyes to this man called Stephen and therefore none of us is with excuse, that if we are willing to, then regardless of our roles, regardless of the responsibilities we may have, that Christ will equally do the same for us. And through Stephen, the Holy Spirit lovingly presented the scriptures to the council. And you know this was being done because the reoffer of the kingdom was still available to the Jews, but as you and I know from Mark chapter number 7, They rejected the message and they stoned Stephen. And we did also finish up by just reminding ourselves that just like Stephen is addressing the Jews and uh, their religious leaders for that matter, reminding them that Abraham was their father, every one of us who has received spirit salvation is Abraham's seed. By extension, Abraham is our father and we may want to consider ourselves also just like this man was spoken to with a question to us will we respond to the truth the word of the kingdom by being cut to the heart wholly embracing it and asking what shall we do or are we going to respond to the truth the word of the kingdom being cut to the heart by rejecting it and choosing to gnash our teeth at its proclamation and I'm sure this is a matter that is so personal that we have to make our own determination. And therefore, I'd like us to um, proceed from there and just again read the words of Acts 7, 57 to 60, which brings us to the end of the book of Acts chapter number 7. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, so much of a response by the religious leaders of Israel to choose, number one, to stop their ears, to cast Stephen out of the city and to stone him. And I was puzzled at this point because I was wondering to myself, why did they choose to stone Stephen? What was their basis? And therefore, let's look at what the scriptures would reveal to us as far as stoning Stephen and others in the scriptures is concerned. Having listened to the message that Stephen gave, instead of receiving it, the council was enraged at it. They were cut to the heart, and consequently they gnashed at him with their teeth. And as they were doing this, Stephen gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God. As the council cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. And ran at him with one accord. And you know, if you think about Stephen looking up and seeing the glory of God as we would find in the book of Acts 7, let me just read to us Acts 7, verse 55, which is not in our notes. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I was curious to just compare that with the opening remarks that Stephen had made in verse 2. And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. It was interesting to me to just see, as I was reviewing this lesson, that when he begins his message, Stephen speaks about the God of glory having appeared to Abraham but as he comes to the end of his life we see Stephen gazing into heaven and you know what he saw? He saw the glory of God and I want to believe that in these two instances it is of regality that are in view because the glory is always associated with rulership. Now these council members made a deliberate choice to literally stop their ears. I don't know if you've ever spoken to someone and they chose to literally stop their ears from hearing what you're saying. I think sometimes it comes maybe especially with us, uh, rather with children, as you talk to them, when they don't want to hear, they will literally block their ears. And you know, as you look at these council members doing that, then this was nothing but a demonstration of their total rejection of Stephen's message. And this response was not any different from that of the Jews during Christ's first advent. Because as we have been looking at the Matthew 13 parables, we know that in verse 14 to 15, Jesus speaking says, and in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of these people have grown dull their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them suffice it to say therefore they had no ear to hear as we may read in Luke 8 verse 8b and that they ran at Stephen with one accord for me demonstrates their unity of purpose. In other words, their next course of action was unanimous. They had all agreed, we are going to cast this man out of the city and then stone him. But you know the encouraging thing about Stephen as he comes to the end of his life is that he walked as Christ, even at his point of death. You know, John would remind us in 1 John 2.6 that he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. In other words, my brothers and my sisters, because of our persuasion and our willingness to abide in him, then also our walk matters, and our walk must also emulate that of Christ. And the reason why we say Stephen walked as Christ, even at his point of his death, is because, like we said two weeks ago, Stephen spoke like Christ. You know, when he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. If you compare that with what Jesus said in Luke 23, 34, Jesus said to the Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And in verse 46, and when they had cried, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. If you compare this last part, I commit my spirit. And the words in verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I'm sure we can see a correlation. And also the fact that when Jesus prayed, he asked the Father to forgive them. And is that not exactly what Stephen did by saying, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And I'm sure that it is to tell us that we don't walk like Jesus based on convenience. This was not a convenient moment for Stephen. But you know, he had fully become sold out to this truth and therefore he spoke like Christ and after he had said that, the scriptures tell us, he fell asleep much as Jesus died after those statements as well. The choice or the decision to stone a person certainly did not begin or end with Stephen. Even though we know that Stephen became the first martyr, Jesus Christ himself, had come under a similar threat during his first advent in the hands of the Jews. In John 8, verse 58 to 59, Jesus said to them, speaking to the Jews, Most assuredly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. The Jews had purpose. They had intent when they attempted to stone him. And that is, they judged him guilty of blasphemy because according to them, he was a man and yet he had made himself God. Later in John 1031 to 33, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? Then the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. During the trial of Jesus Christ, the high priest accused him of the same sin, the sin of blasphemy, for admitting, to be the Christ, the Son of God. And yet this was not a claim. This was the truth of the matter. He was the Christ. He was the Son of God. But because the eyes of these uh, religious leaders were closed, then they could not understand. Reading Matthew's account, chapter 26, verse 63 to 66, but Jesus kept silent. And this was the time when he was before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken. Blasphemy, what further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. I submit to us that it is indisputable that in these two examples, the Jews were supposedly relying on the Old Testament scriptures, the law, to adjudge both Stephen and Christ guilty of the same offense, that of blasphemy. So let's go back to the Old Testament and consider a few provisions of the law where one would be stoned. The first one you would find in Leviticus 20, whereby a Jew or stranger dwelling in Israel who gave a descendant of his to Molech, who is the chief deity or God of the Ammonites, was to be stoned. Reading Leviticus 20 verse 1 to 2, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Again you shall say to the children of Israel, Whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who gives any of his descendants to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. The second provision comes in Numbers 15, verse 32 to 36. A Jew found, violating the law of the Sabbath, was stoned to death in verse 32 following, Now while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day, and those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones and he died. You know, violating the law of the Sabbath was such a grave matter for the Jews because of what it pictures, the Sabbath day that is coming yet future. Another provision that we may find and we may read this at our own time in Deuteronomy is that a Jew who enticed a fellow Jew to serve other gods or he himself transgressed the Lord's covenant by serving other gods faced the same penalty. That is they were to be stoned to death. Lastly for this at this point is another provision whereby a stubborn and rebellious son who did not obey his parents was brought before the elders and ultimately he was stoned with stones to death and I'm sure as we have looked at these four examples neither Stephen nor Christ violated any of these provisions of the law did he did he violate any of these provisions did he he did not isn't it and yet the jews purporting to be relying on the law decided that they were going to stone him and even jesus but there is one more provision of the law in leviticus 24 verse 10 to 16 and then we we shall skip to verse 23 Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel. And this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed, and so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who has cast. then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger, as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. And in verse 23, Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cast and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Sure enough, according to this law, cursing God and blaspheming the name of the Lord had only one penalty, that of death by stoning. And this law was applicable both to a Jew and a stranger. And it is highly likely that the council in the time of Christ, in his first advent, as well as in Stephen's case, are relying on this provision of the law in concluding that both were guilty of blasphemy and subsequently deserving of death. But the question that I leave us with, was this the correct application of the law, God's word? If you look at Leviticus 24, can we truly say that Christ had committed blasphemy for saying that he is a Christ? I'm sure the answer is No. If you look at Stephen, we have there is no evidence based on this law that he had committed blasphemy. But because of this correct misapplication, I mean the incorrect application of the law, because they were blind, as we shall see at the end of this lesson, the Jews passed a judgment against them. Let's leave that for a moment and consider the introduction of a young man named Saul. Because as Stephen was being stoned, The witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of this young man named Saul. And we shall repeat Acts 7 verse 57 and 58. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And in chapter 8 verse 1, now Saul was consenting to his death. This young man, Saul, was consenting to Stephen's death. And he makes a concession later in Acts 22 verse 20, that when the blood, speaking to the Lord, and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death, and guarding the clothes of those who are killing him. And the Greek word for consenting is a word that means to think well, literally, to think well together with. It means to approve along with another, or to take pleasure with others, and thus to assent, to be willing, to agree with, to sympathize with, This word is in the present tense, and in Saul's case, it is a description of the abiding condition of his heart, not just a momentary excitement or thrill from the sight of seeing the blood of Stephen. And while there is no evidence that Saul threw stones at Stephen, clearly, by him consenting, he was agreeing with it, he was approving of it, he was Indeed, assenting to it, he thought it well, together with the rest, he took pleasure with those who stoned him. Let's continue in verse 1 of Acts chapter number 8. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the Apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison, the scriptures would remind us. Great persecution, as we have read, arose again as the church in Jerusalem. And as a result, the church was scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And you see, as you study scripture, it becomes very clear that this persecution facilitated the disciples of Jesus being his witnesses in these two regions, just as he had told them in Acts 1 verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and at the end of the earth. The truth of the matter is that if God was willing to stop the persecution, he would have stopped it. But he allowed it to happen so that that which he had spoken earlier may come to pass. And we have also read that Stephen was buried by devout men and great lamentation made for him. Saul, as we have read, and as we know, I'm sure from our understanding of the life of Saul at his beginning, he made havoc of the church. He entered every house. He dragged off both men and women. He committed them to prison. And if you look at the meaning of the Greek word for made havoc, it means to harm, to damage, to ruin, to destroy, to injure severely. In fact, this word pictures the tearing of a body by an animal. Such was the viciousness that Saul had against the church. And this phrase is in imperfect tense, which shows that Saul was disrupting and devastating one house, then another, wreaking havoc repeatedly. And that phrase, dragging off men and women, is in the present tense, which pictures to us Saul's continual and forcible dragging of believers. You know, that was Saul's cruelty against the church, a matter that did not stop in Acts 8, but continued over time. And you know, his persecution was targeted against only one group of people, those of the way, referring to the church. Reading Acts 9, verse 1 and 2, then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He had no discrimination. If he found men, he brought them bound. If he found women, he brought them bound to Jerusalem. He persecuted the way, to death according to his testimony in Acts 22 verse 4 to 5 I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering into prisons both men and women as also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to do what? to be punished he continues to say that he cast his vote against those put to death, the same people of the way in Acts 26 verse 10 to 11. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often In every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. You know, as you read all this, you wonder and you ask the question what was Saul's motivation for persecuting the church? And thankfully, we have a record in the scriptures to give us an answer as to why he was persecuting the church with such cruelty. Reading his testimony in Acts 22 verse 1-5, to Paul says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women, as also the high priest bears witness with me and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished you know according to this testimony and by way of reminder Saul was a graduate of Gamaliel's school of law he was well versed in the law He had been taught the law from his childhood, so to speak. And, you know, in verse 3, he says that he was zealous toward God, much like those who are hearing him in Acts 22. And, you know, it is this same Gamaliel, if you read Acts 5, verse 33, following, that, you know, provided wisdom, and the apostles um, were released because he was a good teacher, so to speak, Of the law, and therefore, growing up or being brought up at the feet of Gamaliel meant that you had the best of the best, so to speak. But Saul is saying that he was zealous toward God. A word that means to have warmth of feeling for or against, to affect, to have desire, to be jealous over. He's saying that he had desire toward God, and therefore the motivation for him to persecute those of the way. If we read Galatians 1.13-14, Paul continues to say, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Saul had such intent and purpose in persecuting the church of God. He confesses trying to destroy it, you know. And you know, it was unknown to him at that point that nobody can destroy the church of God because he's the one who is building it. And in Matthew 16, he has said, that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. He says that he advanced in Judaism because he was exceedingly zealous for the traditions of his fathers. And we can see that in Saul or Paul's evaluation, being zealous toward God and being zealous for the traditions of my fathers was one and the same. But is it? Can our zeal toward God be equated to our zeal for our fathers and their traditions, remembering, of course, that Christ had reproached the scribes and the Pharisees for giving precedence to their traditions at the expense of God's word and thereby making it of no effect, as we know from Matthew 15, verse 1 following, Then the scribes and the Pharisees, the same group of people, who are from Jerusalem, came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus tells them, Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your traditions or by your tradition. And in vain, Jesus continues to say, They worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments, of men. It is so clear that according to the Pharisees and the scribes, their traditions took precedence over anything else including the word of God. How mistaken they were. And by the time Saul is introduced in Acts 7 towards the end of Stephen's life we saw that he is described as a young man and as he will testify, he admits having spent his youth among the Jews and that he lived a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of their religion. Let's read Acts 26 verse 4 to 9. My man of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and I am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed I myself thought... I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And there you have Saul's explanation or source of motivation in persecuting the church because he thought he must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, if you were to stop Saul when he persecuting, he would have told you that that is his demonstration of zeal. That that is a practice that agrees with the strictest sect of their religion because he lived a Pharisee. So, shows us his persuasion. That based on his upbringing and his adherence to the strictest sect of their religion, which is Judaism as we have seen in Galatians 1, he had to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm persuaded that Saul had scripture to back up his actions. But you know, that was scripture that was wrongly divided. Indirectly, Paul is revealing to us the persuasion that was held by the Pharisees. They had an obligation. That is why he says, I must do things, many things, contrary to the name of Jesus. They had an obligation to reject Christ at all costs and maybe that can explain to us why they were so much against Christ during his first advent. Consider Paul's credentials that we know from Philippians 3 verse 3 to 6, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I supersede all of you. I am also. And he begins to enumerate them. Number one, circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And if you just pause for a moment and consider that his persecuting the church was associated with zeal, then it explains to us why he was doing the things he did, trying to destroy the church of God. And based on these credentials, legally, Paul met all the requirements for a Jew. In fact, he says he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had the added advantage of being well versed in the law. And he says concerning the law, a Pharisee, his zeal, as we have said, was demonstrated in his persecution of the church and he was blameless regarding righteousness which is in the law. And I want to submit to us that these credentials could also apply to the other Pharisees because you know what? He was also one of them as we read from his testimony in Acts 23 verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. You know, when you read that Paul says of himself that he was a Pharisee, and you consider the council members It almost would give us an understanding why he consented to the stoning of uh, Stephen. Because he was among them. They read from the same script, so to speak. And the religious leaders of Israel sat in Moses' seat, as we know from Matthew 23. And they were therefore tasked to do only one thing, to teach the law. So that there would be proper growth amongst the children of Israel, the Jews, during the first advent of Christ. And Jesus says then, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. And therefore it means that the responsibility of teaching was something that they had been taught. And therefore God was not expecting them to teach something else. But as we know from the evidence of scripture, they knew what they needed to teach, but they chose to teach something else, giving precedence to their traditions. They abdicated this responsibility. They chose to teach us doctrine the commandments of men. So much so that when Christ looks at the multitude in Matthew 9, he saw the multitudes. He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Know that there were no shepherds then. They were there. But you know the shepherds had abdicated their responsibility. And I'm sure that if you bring in this to the church and you compare with what we are learning about the parable of the wheat and the tares, we can almost see that there is a connection. The religious leaders misapplied scripture. When they accused Christ and Stephen of blasphemy, and yet there was no evidence of culpability on their part, for sure, without a shadow of doubt, Christ is the Son of Man, and therefore, he did not blaspheme. He was speaking the truth. This is something the Sanhedrin did not know at the time. Stephen's message was rightly divided. It was drawn from the Old Testament scriptures, but yet again, the council was not willing to accept it. Why were they not willing to accept it? Why did they not know that Christ was the Son of Man? It is because they were blind. And reading Matthew 15, 12 and 14, Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And Jesus, speaking to them, tells them, Let them alone. They are blind teachers of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. And this is figurative language that the religious leaders of Israel, those who sat at Moses' seat, they were blind leaders of the blind, speaking of the Jews as a nation. In John 9:39 to 41 and Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind." Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore, your sin remains. While Paul was persecuting the church, he thought he was demonstrating zeal toward God. And I'm sure that many of us would identify with this zeal before we came to the understanding of the word of the kingdom. I'm sure there are many things that we did and we were persuaded this is the right thing to do. You know, did you go for mission outreaches? Did you evangelize in school, for example? You know, were you persuaded to do this and that? Were you in a ministry, for example, singing because, you know, you were told you must be doing something? irrespective of whether you are living right or not. You know, there was a degree of zeal that we had when we were still in that laudition environment. And I'm sure that if any one of us were to be stopped at the time and asked, why are you doing this? Why are you giving towards this mission to Marsabit, for example, or to this part of the world? We would say, you know, the scriptures have told us in Matthew 28 to do this and to do that. We had scripture to back up our persuasions, Right. But unbeknown to Paul and us at the time, little did we know at the time, little did Paul know at this time that he was blind. And from the foregoing, we can only make this conclusion, my brothers and my sisters, that the scriptures were closed to both Paul or Saul and the religious leaders of Israel. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 14 to 15 would remind us this morning, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, Paul says, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. And you can see the scriptures we uh, took from the Old Testament to do with stoning were in the book of Moses. And yet it was misapplied for the simple reason that their minds were blinded. And there was a veil upon the Jews in, that remained lifted in the reading of the Old Testament. And if we were to read that last part before verse 15, Paul says expressly the veil is taken away in Christ. Why did Paul not say the veil is taken away in Jesus? I'm sure that Paul is saying the veil is taken away as we come to embrace the gospel of the Christ, matters to do with Christ and his coming kingdom. And therefore the veil can only be taken in the life of anyone when they come to embrace the word of the kingdom. But you know, God is a God of mercy. He extended mercy upon Paul. If you look at all the viciousness that Paul had when he was persecuting the church, I'm sure many of us may have written him off like this guy is good for nothing. But you know, dear friends, as we learned during the conference and subsequently, none of us is in that place to judge another and to conclude that they are irredeemable as we shall see in part 12b, if the Lord is willing In Acts chapter number 9 verse 3, as he journeyed he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him and this was not Kenya power shining light around Saul, this was light from heaven. I mean I am sure that we can all relate to God's mercy extended to us and I hope that this last scripture will give us a cue of what part 12b will be about. It's about the scriptures opened to Paul. I'd like us to close with a word of prayer. Our gracious Father and our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you God and we bless you. Thank you that you have been pleased to shepherd us, bring us to the understanding of this truth And gracious God, revealing to us, dear Lord, in a very personal way, dear God, just how much our lives were similar to those of the scribes, the Pharisees, and to Paul's life as well, because there was a time when the scriptures were close to them. But Lord, we thank you that because of your mercy, motivated by your love for us, you've opened the scriptures to us. And we thank you, God that even as we pray for the spiritually blind that we know and that we do not know, you would desire for us to apply the same mercy to them. That, Lord, we have no room to judge because we were in the very same spot that they are in. And so, God, we thank you and pray that we shall continue to contract this burden to be in prayer for those that are spiritually blind. Lord, we thank you that you continue to make an invitation to us that we may be faithful men that you would entrust with this truth, to teach others as well. And so, God, I pray that even as we begin a new week, as we ponder on this lesson, as we look at what Pastor is teaching in Nakuri, Lord, we pray that you shall truly bring us to a better understanding of this truth. And the Lord, if it pleases you for us to meet again on Sunday, would you remind us, Lord, to give thanks to you. Our desire, God, is that on that day when we stand before you, The Lord, we shall hear those wonderful words of our colleagues. Well done, good and faithful servant. So Lord, we commend ourselves to you. We bless you and we honor you because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.